now I'm on. But you heard me. It's good to be with all of you. Uh, my name's Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here. Uh, so welcome to you if you're new, um, and to all of you, but welcome to you if you're new or if you're at home. Grateful to be able to share with you this morning. Um, and I'm also just grateful for, well, I'm grateful for this family, and I'm grateful for your flexibility. Uh, of course, it feels like, oh, we're wearing masks again, we're having a step back, but I appreciate, just appreciate your willingness to be flexible. Uh, so many times in the last year and a half, uh, Beth has called me or I've called Beth and said, guess what? Um, well, guess, guess what's new? Uh, so super grateful for, for just this for you and, and for you to be here with us today. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the word this morning. God, you are, you are gentle with us. You are kind. Thank you for your word. You speak to us through it. Uh, thank you for hearing about um, what the Borgeses are doing and the ways that, that, your, that your kingdom it's, doesn't stop. You are constantly on the move here and beyond. I'm so grateful for that fact. Thank you for involving us in that work. God, I pray that as we look at Acts this morning, that you would help it to come alive for us in a way that, that we see it afresh, and also in a way that it moves in our lives and works to form us uh, by your Spirit. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in the book of Acts. Where we've begun a series where we're going through Acts, and we'll be in this for quite a while um, we've gone over the first two chapters, and this morning we're going to do the impossible task of going through two chapters together, uh, chapters three and four. So if you want, you can actually get a Bible out, and you can turn to Acts chapter three. We heard the beginning of Acts three read, really the moment that sort of incites the rest of the next two chapters. It's like that moment in a movie or in a novel um, that really gets the action going, and everything sort of begins to play off of of this one incident of a man being healed. And so what I want to do this morning is begin by actually giving an overview of these two chapters, of chapters 3 and 4, and then talking about a few different things from the two chapters that I think tie them together. So as you can see behind me, um, as I can see in this little TV up here, uh, the overview of Acts uh, chapters 3 and 4, I just want to walk through it. So what we see at the beginning, which we heard read, is Peter and John, they heal a man. So they're here at the beginning, and we're, we're told it's at the beautiful gate. It's, it's this place where they're like near the temple, um, and they see a man, and they heal him. And then we see in verses 11 through 26 of chapter 3 that then Peter preaches. He preaches to the people of Israel in Jerusalem. Now, remember, when Acts began, Luke told us that the trajectory of the gospel is going to begin in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to, to the ends of the earth. So this is that moment where it's beginning in Jerusalem. Then we turn into chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. We see that Peter and John, uh, they're arrested. They're arrested by the religious authorities, by the religious aristocracy of the time. But then we also know that that movement of the Spirit cannot be stopped, even though uh, they are arrested more than 5,000 people hear Peter's proclamation, and were saved. Then verses 5 through 12, we see that Peter is questioned, and then he responds to that questioning in boldness. In verses 13 through 22 of chapter 4, we see that the religious authorities, they're confounded. 
They're actually confounded by Peter's boldness. How is it that he's still able to speak with such boldness, even though they're, they're trying to suppress the message of the gospel? But they also are confounded because they cannot deny what has happened. A man has been healed. Then in verses 22 through 31, we see that Peter and John return to their community. And as we've already seen, the community that the Spirit has become part of and is indwelled, they can't help but pray. And when they pray, the place where they were, were gathered shakes this another amazing moment of the Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit, and then they continue to speak the word with boldness. So that's just this long overview of the, the two chapters that we're going to be talking about this morning. But I want to talk about a few things that I think Luke is doing in these two chapters that I think are really important. I mean, on the one hand, he's showing how the gospel message is first preached in Jerusalem, which we talked about. He's also wanting to show the resistance of that message, which is in line with the resistance that Jesus actually had happened to him in the gospels. But he's showing the resiliency of the Christian community, that even in spite of this resistance, the Christian community, the movement of the Spirit cannot be stopped. The gospel, the apostles will continue to preach the community will continue to pray and support. He's doing those things, but one key thing that Luke can't help but do in these two chapters is talk about the name of Jesus. Somehow the power and authority of the name of Jesus comes up again and again in these two chapters. What Luke is wanting to do, which he's done from Luke 1.1, is connect the story of the church to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They are inseparable. You, we cannot understand what the Christian church is doing or is supposed to do without first recognizing the story and the movement and the power of Jesus himself. So I just want to look at a few places where the name of Jesus comes up in Acts 3 and Acts 4. Again, just to show that this is something that Luke is intentionally doing as an author. So in Acts 3, 6, we see that Peter said, and he says this to the man who's crippled from birth. He says, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of, Naz of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. Later on in verse 16, it says, And by faith in his name, the name of Jesus, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and, that, and the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. Peter is describing what has happened to the people who are questioning him, and he is saying that it is because of the name of Jesus. That is what has made this man strong, and it is faith in this person, Jesus. Then we turn over to chapter 4, verse 7. When they had made the prisoners, talking about the religious authorities, stand in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is, who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then we go to, to verse 17, and he's talking about the religious authorities again in chapter 4, but to keep it from spreading further among the people, 
let us warn them, talking about the Christian community, specifically Peter and John, warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Then again in verse 30. And now, or starting in verse 29. And now, Lord, look at their threats. This is the community praying. And grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. In his name. By what name? The name of Jesus is something that we cannot overlook in these two chapters. Luke is wanting to be sure that we recognize that anything that the Christian community is doing, anything that Peter and John are doing, is only because of the name of Jesus. Now, when it speaks of the name of Jesus, it's not just simply talking about the actual name, but name means something. If we go back to the beginning of Scripture, we see that when God shows up to Moses in the burning bush, and he tells them to go release the people from captivity in, in Egypt. Moses says, well, who, am I, who, who is sending me? Who am I supposed to tell the people who is sending me? Tell them I am sent you. Yahweh, the Lord, it becomes the this, this source of power because the name speaks to the reality of the person. And not just who the person is, but their authority their power, and what it is they're doing. This is actually the empowerment for the apostles, for this early Christian community, the name of Jesus, the authority and the power of Jesus. And so in these two chapters, what do we see about this authority and power in terms of what it makes possible? What does the authority and power of Jesus make possible? Well, first, what we see is literal physical healing and restoration. I mean, again, we go back to the Gospels. Isn't it interesting that one of the first things we see the apostles do is one of the first things we see Jesus do, which is to heal, to heal a man who's crippled, to suggest that the kingdom of God, the power and authority of Jesus, means physical restoration. Acts 3, 8 through 10. After Peter and John healed the man, jumping up, the man stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus means physical restoration. It means that healing is possible. And this type of restoration physically isn't just simply a person's body being healed, but actual restoration physically into a community. In this moment when a person, or at this time when a person was crippled, if a person got to the point where they were asking for alms, things were very bad. That was not something or that people wanted to do, not a place that people wanted to be. It was shameful to get to that place in order to live that you needed to beg and ask for money. There is a sense of being excluded from the community. Some scholars think that they, people in this state weren't actually able to enter 
or get close to the temple. But because he's physically healed and restored, this physical restoration is possible, this communal restoration is possible. But the authority and power of Jesus also makes possible spiritual healing and restoration. Later on, after this, when, when Peter is, is being questioned, and when he begins to respond, he actually tells the people of Israel in Jerusalem the reality of the salvation that is possible in Jesus. Acts 4, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. So the message of the gospel, the message of God's kingdom means physical restoration. It also means spiritual restoration. It means salvation. There is no other name by which we can be saved. And I say that to you, there is no other name by which we can be saved. It is the name of Jesus that makes salvation possible. Not who I am, not who you are, not what we're capable of, but the power and authority of Jesus and what he's given to us in his life, death, and resurrection, that is what makes salvation possible. That is the good news of the gospel. And so we see this sense of the name of Jesus, this thread in these two chapters, but we also see the people's responses to this power, and to this authority. And there are three responses to Christ's authority and power that we see in these two chapters. The first one is boldness. We see that Peter, we see that John, there's a sense of boldness. They actually know what they have, or at least they have a sense of it. They probably don't know completely that they see a man who is crippled and they have a calling, empowered by the Spirit, to say that we do not have silver and gold, but what we do have is this, and then heal a man. There is boldness in the sense of their understanding that they are empowered by the Spirit. But they are also emboldened to do something significant that I don't think I've ever been hung up on before like this week in thinking about this passage. And it's this moment, if you want to turn to chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple, called the beautiful gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Why? That is astounding to me. That, that moment that Peter and John asked the man to look at them. 
That's a fascinating, it's a fascinating detail of this passage. To stop and to tell the man to look at us. And I would, I would love to hear everybody's response to why you think they ask him to do that. Well, one reason is I imagine where this, per- this person's state, where they are in the community, they don't have, or he doesn't have, the sense of himself to think that he is worth actually making eye contact with another human being. That's what I imagine. How could you, right? He's, he's just asking for things. But yet Peter and John are emboldened in a way of wanting again, like I said, to restore this person to community and begin to enact that restoration by demanding some sort of of contact with one another. This is even before the healing. Like their boldness to say this person, whom most people might reject or exclude, we're not just going to take time with, but we are going to demand that some sort of communal moment takes place. Look at us. Now there is a sense of boldness in that, because it requires boldness to dignify. I think it requires boldness to dignify another human being. Because once we dignify people who we might think are undignified, then it means we are required to then treat them differently than we would have otherwise. That requires boldness. And it's something that I think that this Holy Spirit makes possible, not just then, but to us now that we have the ministry of dignifying other human beings who may not think they have a place. We can be emboldened by the Spirit to stop, to see, and to say, look at us. They were also emboldened to know that what they had was worth way more than silver and gold that because of the power of the Spirit, they could tell this man to stand up and he would, and he would walk. They also have boldness with the religious authorities. In verse 13 of chapter 4, we see this. When the religious authorities, when Luke gives us this detail of how the religious authorities see them, they say when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognize them as companions of Jesus. That is so beautiful to me. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they recognized that they were uneducated and ordinary, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. So one response to Christ's authority is boldness. Now another response is resistance or threat. There's a, there's a sense of threat that comes with Christ's authority. And we see this with the religious authorities, with the religious aristocracy, because they have a sense of the way things have been. They have a sense of their structures. They have a sense of their history. And all of a sudden, this is calling that into question. And their power and their authority is threatened. And Jesus, as we see in the Gospels, he just disrupts the status quo. The way things were can no longer be 
and that is disconcerting. We have a human propensity toward comfort, toward wanting things to be the way that they have been and so that they can always be the way that they are. When that's disrupted, we resist. Or maybe that's just true of me. I am resistant to change. But when Jesus gets involved, when the Spirit of God is involved, watch out. What we see in Acts is people are doing things they don't want to be doing. They go places they don't want to go. It's just the way that God works. But there's this threat, and we see this in chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. This is speaking of the religious authorities. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it's obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We can't deny it. Isn't this great? Like we're getting this inner dialogue. What are we supposed to do here with these guys? Because clearly something has happened. We can't deny it. They can't deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. See, the authorities, they know that that the name of Jesus, that what is going on in the spirit is something significant. It is going to disrupt the way things have been. It will change literally everything. So we are going to ask them to stop speaking in this name because we do not want things to be different. So that is another response to Christ's authority. We see the apostles acting in boldness. We see the religious authorities threatened or resistant. But then we also see another response to the authority of Jesus is dependence. See, notice that the boldness on display that we've seen, right, is something that the Peter and John seem to have a sense of. They act out in it um, when they heal the man. But it's also something they later pray for, which I also find fascinating. So it's something they did. They were bold. But then as the story continues, when they go back to the community, they, they need to pray for it again. Acts 4, verses 29 through 30. And now, Lord, look at their threats. This is the community praying when Peter and John return. And grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. Now, why would they pray for it if they already saw that they did it? I think it suggests that it's an ever-present need. So grant your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, when we know that it's Jesus who has the power and authority, when we know that it's the name of Jesus that is the one, that is the, or that is the reason for this movement, then we are ever dependent on that power rather than our own. One scholar named Willie Jennings, who wrote a, a commentary on Acts, um, he, he speaks about this boldness in this way, in this dependence. Peter speaks boldly. But this boldness is not the result of character refinement or moral formation. Peter has not become the great man who stares down his enemies with epic courage, the kind that creates an odyssey or a heroic tale. Indeed, there is no such things as individual boldness for the followers of Jesus. Of course, each disciple can and must be bold, but their boldness is always a together boldness, a joined boldness. A boldness born of intimacy. 
The modern lie of individualism is most powerful when we imagine that boldness comes from within. Do not miss that. The modern lie of individualism is most powerful when we imagine that boldness comes from within. It does not. It comes from without, from the Spirit of God. The disciples gathered together to ask for what comes from without. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with boldness. They see the threat, they pray, and they ask for boldness. This moment sets the template for the movement, for any movement that is of Jesus. It's a really powerful sense of dependence, that boldness does not come from within. It's easy to think that Christianity, the goal of Christianity is that I become a superhuman, that somehow I am a person who will no longer need, that the trajectory of the Christian faith is to be in a place where I don't recognize my constant ever sense of dependence. But that is the exact opposite of the faith that we are called to engender and the one that the Spirit wants to form within us. The type of Christian faith that we see in Acts, that we see in the Christian story, is a faith that says always, every moment, I need. I need to be empowered by you, Jesus, by the Spirit. You are not capable in and of yourself, nor will you ever be, to be one who speaks with boldness and testify faithfully to the one that is Jesus. That is the Spirit's work in us. That's why even Peter and John were able to heal a man, but then later on know they needed to continue to pray with boldness because it is not just a once-in-a-lifetime thing. The Spirit empowers the church, which then engenders this constant sense of, Lord Jesus, we need the power of your name to be the one that makes this possible, to move the gospel further. A boldness that comes from without, and that speaks to dependence. And so we see these three responses in Acts 3 through 4 to the authority of Jesus. Boldness, resistance, feeling threatened, and also dependence. And so as we leave this morning, here are three questions I would like for you to ponder, like for us to ponder together. The first one is this, do you know what you have? Do you know what we have? Do you recognize, do I, do we recognize that the Spirit of God has poured out upon his church? That the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that animates and empowers us as his followers. Not a different Spirit. Not a Spirit that was then, and this is kind of just a small little bit of Spirit. No, like the same Spirit. Do we know what we have, that we are spirit-empowered people who can then be bold with who we are and the message that we have, which is because of the name of Jesus, because of his power and authority, it means physical, communal restoration. It means spiritual restoration. It means salvation. That is the message. It reminds me not too long ago, 
I, was, I, I ran into somebody that I knew, kind of in a, a sort of a random acquaintance. This always happens, and I, I say this all the time, and I like to tell you when, you when this happens again. He's, you know, I asked him what he did. I knew what he did. I was like, oh, you do this. He said, yes. He asked me what I did. I said, oh, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh. It's just conversation over. Done. Dead. It's like the worst thing that you can say to anybody. Um, if, if they don't, if they're not a churchgoer, even if you are a churchgoer, you're not interested really in what I do. But, um, but even, if you, even if you're not, it, there's this sense of, oh, okay, there's a totally foreign world. And I used to be very reticent about that and really try to find different words for how to say that and, and like hedge a little bit. And now I just say it and make it awkward and weird and then try to continue pressing into the relationship. Because I think that that's the, that's, that is who we are. And so I guess that's, the, that's my thing to you. You're not, you're not pastors, but you are ministers. You are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if we can speak with boldness about who we are, if we truly believe that the name of Jesus means what it says it means, if this is possible in the book of Acts and continues to be the calling of the church, do not hide who you are or what you have. Be who you are. Be who you are, which is one empowered by the Spirit, bringing good news to the world. So do we know, do you know what we have? Because, my friends, it is good. It is the best thing. Second question, how are you, how are we resistant to Christ's authority? Now, I ask that question in a way that it assumes that you are, because you are. Because I am. And it's just part of what it means to be a human being who is in continual repentance of wanting to recognize what has happened in Jesus and to have a life being formed by the spirit that is living in line with the kingdom of God. And so we are all resistant in our own ways. How are you resistant to Christ's authority? Where do you feel threatened? Where in your life do you want to hold on and not let go? That's a good place to start, at least to think about the ways you might be resistant to Christ's authority. What part of you, your life do you just, you just kind of want to hold on to? You just want to put it in your pocket so nobody else sees it. Say, yeah, I'll give that to Jesus later. What is that for you? Last question. Are you, are we dependent on the Spirit? Are we people marked by dependence? Are you a super Christian? If you think you are, bad news doesn't exist. A Christian is one who says, I need, I need the Spirit of God to be at work in my life, to be forming my life, to empower, to convict, to love. Are we dependent on that Spirit? See, something has happened because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection. The power and authority of Jesus means good news for the world. And if we are people whom the Spirit has been poured out upon, then we can be people who are bold. We can be people who are honest about the ways that we resist and repent. And we can be people marked by that ever-increasing need to be dependent upon the Spirit and His movement. 
And thanks be to God that, that God has begun something wonderful and that we're wrapped up in it and that we have an opportunity to be emboldened by the Spirit and to be dependent upon the Spirit and His work. So grateful, and I'm so grateful to be doing it with all of you. In just a moment, we're going to partake in in the bread and cup together, which is an act of dependence in and of itself, to say, I am defined by my need, my need of food from Christ, my need of his blood, of his giving of himself, so that I might have life. This is the moment that we say we are a community who is dependent. Now, you're going to be released by rows. You can come forward and you can grab the elements, but hold on to them. I'm taking back to your seat. We're going to uh, partake of them together. Now, if, those, if there are people streaming this outside, some people will um, also come to give you elements as well. So you don't need to come in. We'll go out to you. Uh, and those of you at home, this is a communal meal. And so even if you're not partaking with us, with us live, you are still partaking with us together as a church, um, expressing our need with one another. You don't have to be a member of this church to partake. All are welcome, those who have professed their faith in Jesus. So if you'd please stand, and you'll be released in a moment.